On today's episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast, we talk to the amazing Mark Alston of Investigations Differently. We talk sports, regulations, we talk safety profession, and Mark provides some stuff right at the very end that's going to be extremely useful to you. Here we go. Support and so much more. Send us an email, thehopnerd at gmail.com, and be sure to follow along with us on all things social media at thehopnerd or at Sam Goodman. Welcome to today's episode. What's going on, dude? How you been? Good, mate. So long, so long, ridiculously long. It's been. Geez, when's the, I mean, we caught up, what, what oh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years, I don't know, man, it's been a Yeah, second. I know. Hey, Zeus. <laughs> just, um, yeah, just way too long. Way yeah. too long. So what's been going on uh, with you? Um, oh, I've just been uh, doing a whole heap of stuff. So yeah. Uh, working with clients, so we're, we're working with lots of different clients in lots of different industries, which is really exciting. So um, everything from the Air Force here, oh, um, state cool. re- state regulators, um, uh, even fast food, KFC, Taco Bell. Um, really? Yeah, health. Um, so hospital, hospitals, um, healthcare, um, corrections. <laughs> so um, both. Uh, uh, youth and, and and senior, both here in Australia and overseas, and yeah, lots lots of, so lots of lots of work with lots of different clients, which has been really exciting to see that um, it doesn't matter what industry, <laughs> it really is makes no difference about the industry. No, um, it, 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 everything we talk about in this space is exactly um, applicable across all industries. Yeah. Um, so, and the when we when we get in and we start actually talking to the workers, and particularly um, that those those line managers that sit in that supervisor and one or two up in organisations, they are just so hungry for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they really are, and they see it, uh, and they believe it. Um, and um, and they want more of it, so that that's the exciting thing. So um, yeah, so that's that's been really cool. Um, last year was stupidly busy. Yeah. Um, I've tried to cut back a little bit this year. Um, yeah, I know what you not, mean, but, but that's not working out so well for me. Um, as soon as you start that, to clear a little a little little patch on your plate. There's more peas and carrots just dumped right on overflow, oh. right? You're like I just, I just needed a little. Nope, somebody's going to put some dates on your calendar. <laughs> I, I had a client ring me like basically I was meant to go do some work for him next week, and they rec- they, they rang me up like yesterday, literally yesterday. I just got off a plane from Melbourne, um, and said, "Oh look, we, we, we're going to have to postpone for a few months." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, I'm really keen to work with them." Um, mm-hmm. 
that just gives me a little breathing room. So what about yourself? Eerily similar. (laughs) I think so. Something that you said that really resonates with me right now is the variety of industries in which I find myself. Hmm. It, it, It blows my mind. I mean, it absolutely blows my mind. I think what really blows my mind now, because I'm kind of with you, I do a lot of work in uh, kind of my original bread and butter area of power generation, transmission, distribution, those kind of things, renewable energy, nuclear energy, gas energy, coal energy, all all those different things still. Uh, But I find myself in healthcare quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, I find myself in all the nooks and crannies of manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Like all the nooks and crannies of manufacturing. I've been doing a bunch of stuff uh, in the world of steel mills and foundries and stuff like that. But yeah. then just as much in like food and beverage manufacturing. I mean, the way I tell people, it's I, I'm, at a, I'm at a chemical plant one day. I'm at a plant that makes bubble gum the next. <laughs> and then I'm in a factory that makes ammunition. Like it's the weirdest it can be like the weirdest you week. You have to take any of that with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, exa- so exa- <laughs> so I will say, I will say that, uh, that they do send me away for at least. I, so I would be more pumped if they sent me with goodie bags from the ammunition factories, but the candy <laughs> factories so definitely, definitely send you away with like big bags. <laughs> Of treats, <laughs> way too many treats. He's like, I've, got, I've got to get one of those. I've got to well, get one and, of those. Ones. And you know, with with my daughter, they're always like, "Take this home to Avery," and I'm like, "Sure, wink, wink, wink." I'll take this home. I eat it almost all on the plane before I get home. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, it's wild. I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, I don't know your uh, your thoughts on it. I, just from my perspective, I think we, um, I think in our little world. I think I just classify our little world as folks just trying to do things maybe a little bit differently and leave things a little bit better than how they found them. Uh, I won't even throw a label on that because of the amount of arguments that take place over the over some of those labels. Um, but what I what I found is that, uh, or my opinion on this is that I think that we've still as as much variety, as much diversity there is there is in clients as as many folks as we spend time with, I still feel like we're just scratching the surface of industry. But I think the, the, the positive side to that is, is exactly that, that kind of result of, of diversity of industry and, and everything from candy factories to ammunition factories to, as you said, corrections and healthcare. And people are starting to realize the power of that kind of shift. Yeah. Right. And I'm I'm happy to see a lot of our kind of approaches start to finally shed and kind of outgrow just the the safety label. Because most of the work that I do isn't even around safety nowadays. I don't know what you experienced, but it's around quality and efficiency. And I would just call it operation safety being a part of that, but just it's just, ops. Outcome, right? it's just <laughs> one outcome. Yeah, you know, like right? yeah. yeah, I facilitate, you know, I've facilitated a number of learning teams and um like one I just recently did was with a um, uh, uh, a corrections department um, for for in another country, um, and they were having issues with how the teamwork between the custodial staff and their health centre staff, and so basically the learning team, yeah, there was a safety outcome for some of it, but it was about improving teamwork, yeah, um, which just improves quality, efficiency, safety. Um, you know, production, if you like, you know, 
it improved, like it's it's just one outcome. So that's the thing that sort of resonated with me with this approach because I used to work as a miner. Well, mm-hmm. can't say I'm a, I wasn't really a miner. I was an underground operator <laughs> because I operated equipment. Uh, with this little thing in Australia, you can only call yourself a miner if you actually hand drilled the holes and hand packed the explosives, right? right that's right, a real right. miner. Right. Um, the rest are just underground operators um, operating equipment. But I used to do that. And the thing that resonated with me with this approach was it was centred around them. And it was centred around the actual work, not whether or not you had a safety policy stuck on a wall somewhere. Um, and that's where I think it really grabs, um, you know, like that, 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 as I said, that that first level of supervision uh, and and they're one up and two up from there because they came from the floor. They ca- they were workers. Yeah. Not that they don't work now, but they were on the floor. So, you know, th- that's where I just think it grabs. Mm. Um, the health one's the most fascinating one for me um, of all the industries because, you know, we, you, with construction and manufacturing and, and those sorts of things, fairly similar to mining and, and energy, oil and gas, like there's, you know, you're still dealing with a lot of similar risks uh, but when you get into health, it's a bit different. There's a lot more. Uh, they've got a massive focus. I don't know what it's like in in in, in the states, but it's massive focus on occupational violence mm. and aggression here in Australia. Yeah. Um, we have um, our health staff uh, are assaulted daily, um, and 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 actually, that's probably one of the biggest risks in those service industries. Yeah. Uh, is 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 um, occupational violence and aggression. Yeah. Um, and um, so, and then working with them to sort of come up with control, like firstly identifying where the real risks are and then putting controls in that work, yeah. that's, that's been very interesting. It's, yeah. I think, Sam, overall, um, in Australia, there, there's very few organisations are still in this space. Um, you know, most predominantly are still in the behavioural-based safety stuff workers should care more, workers paid more attention, all this other rubbish. Um, yeah. There's still, the, the majority are um, still in that space. So, um, you know, it's 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 not brick by brick, it's piece of sand by piece of sand. Uh, exactly, exactly. I, I think that's the, uh, I think that's so much of the power in a lot of the shares. You, you mentioned the white papers and then, you know, the stuff that we try to get out there from my end and yeah. the stuff that so many other folks out there I mean, I, I'm sure you can think back to your to your own kind of first uh, introductions to some of these different ideas. And many of us were thinking in a bit of a different direction far before we discovered that much of it had a name, right? Yeah. We knew that we were we knew that we were the oddballs, or at the time, our organizations might have called us the uh, the outcasts and the rebels or the misfits, right? Because we oh. we, we were thinking in a bit of a <laughs> in a bit of a different direction. And then we usually, m- many of those stories, that's probably one of the the same through lines is you discover maybe some uh, Sid stuff or some uh, Todd stuff, or you find some Hollenagle stuff and you kind of, you know, you, you start, oh, there's a name for so much of what I'm oh, thinking. And there's so much information here. But exactly. thinking thinking to where we're at now, kind of from where we were, I guess, as a community when we first started this, you know, I remember my first Google search around like what is hop, and there was like nothing, yeah. right? <laughs> there was like there was like nothing, right? So I, where I'm going with the, I'm going to this whole thing is I think that that's one of the one of the most positive things that I, I've been kind of stewing on at least recently 
is that, you know, we might have just scratched the surface. And I think the way that you described it is perfect, this kind of grain of sand by grain of sand. But the more that we kind of keep those better ideas, those better beliefs, those better assumptions, the more we continue to share those. My thought is, is that that person out there in that company that has never heard this stuff before gets just a taste of it. And yeah. they're going, crap, there is a better way. Right. And maybe yeah. that's wildly optimistic. <laughs> on my well, part. <laughs> I think, yeah. And uh, to me, um, like I got asked a while ago, um, I've got some clients, you know, they're advertising for staff, you know, um, for safety staff. And, 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 and possible. the number one, the number one criteria for any person in a safety position in any field is curiosity. And I, and that's that's the thing. If you you can't teach curiosity, um, and too many um, practitioners, safety so-called professionals, do not have enough curiosity. So they, they all they rely on is the Kool Aid provided by their own organisation about what safety is. Mm -hmm. So they're not going out there researching. They're not going out there looking. They're not doing the Google search. Yeah. Um, and God. Um, you know, you go and do a Google search now on any of these things and you're going to get heaps of articles, heaps of websites, um, and even organisations themselves are putting, uh, have stuff like publicly available on this material. But we just need more safety people to be, um, to, 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 to be more curious. And we also need our institutions to to drive this curiosity um, and this challenge and to move out of doing things the old way um, and especially in America just so tied up with OSHA yeah um, you know like OSHA like geez that's where we need like the, the OSHA needs influencing yeah well and it's interesting to me because um and this is going to sound sacrilegious a, a bit to uh probably some of our safety friends out there. I, I, I jokingly, and it's not, uh, it's not really jokingly. It, it's, it's more factual than it is a joke, but I refer to myself as a recovering safety professional now at this point in my career, right? I'm, I'm in recovery. So a good, a good amount of years going strong. I'm going to get the recovering safety professional chip, you know, <laughs> pretty, 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 pretty. Well, is, so Sam, when, when you travel, when you travel, what do you put down as your occupation? I, and I don't even, I don't like this term either. I don't, I don't even like this term either, but I just generally put down consultant. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And, and <laughs> even someone says to you, what do you do? <laughs> right? And they ask you, oh, what sort of consultant? Because I'm saying, yeah. I'm almost embarrassed to say safety. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when, when I'm asked, and it is kind of hard to, um, I'm horrible at the uh, elevator pitch anyways. You know, the one thing that you're supposed to be really good at if you're going to go anywhere in your career, right? I've always been terrible at that because I'm the person that likes to ramble and talk for, you know, two hours. Duh. Right? That's good. I love it. I love it. No. I, don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want the, I don't want the 30 second. I want the, I want like, we're going to spend a week together and talk about it. Right? Like, <laughs> let's get down in the weeds. I like, I like that one. But I, even with my friends and families and, 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 a, and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, folks that I, you know, how it goes, you're, you, you're in a, you run into something very similar, if not the same, probably even worse than what I deal with, where you spend most of your life in transit, right? You're not here. You're not there. You're stuck in between. <laughs> right? I, I, I flew over a hundred 
you're, you're in you're in airport uber taxi purgatory right you're you're stuck you're stuck in between right you're just kind of floating there limp defenseless to the mercy of whoever's moving you from point a to point b right so you you strike up those conversations right you get stuck in the airport and i'm sure you i know you deal with it too where you're like crap my flight got canceled i'm here for 12 hours what do I do for 12 hours? I'm finding the bar. <laughs> That's what I'm doing if I'm stuck here for 12 hours, right? <laughs> this might be miserable, but it's going to be fun and miserable if I'm going to be stuck yeah. in the stupid airport. For well, at least hours. the first two hours will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> at least, the, you know, if you're stuck there for 12, you can drink for six, sleep for six, and then get on the plane. You're fine, right? It works <laughs> It works out pretty good. But you strike up those conversations, or as I said, you're, you're, you're talking to family or friends, and you're trying to describe to them what you do, right? And you're trying to, I'm with you. I'm like, I don't... If I say safety, that's not it. It, it. it doesn't fit what I do. If I say right. if I say consultant, that's not really it either. That doesn't really fit exactly what I do. If it's one of those kind of passing consultant, yeah, yeah, bye. If it's one for sure, yeah, safety, yeah, yeah, bye. You know that, of course. But when you truly try to describe that, I don't even know, right? It's so hard to describe. And I hate to say, as a to a lay person that's not in this kind of bubble of kind of thought. It's hard to describe some of those things. But I think the where, where I always talk about is almost exactly what you said. When I have to put that into a short amount of sentences, I'd say I teach companies how to grow and develop operational curiosity and learning within their organization. Okay. A, a deep focus on operational curiosity and learning. That's it, okay. period. Like safety, that, of course, yeah, that might be a piece of it. Um, quality, that's almost always a piece of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell them, I tell people that I um I help organisations learn how to reduce their risk. Mm. Yeah. That, yeah. That, so it's not me reducing their risk. Yeah. I help them learn exactly. how to reduce their risk. That's yeah. that's basically what I say. And then um people just go, okay. I don't know what that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so I was I was I was going with kind of the tried and true line of. I teach them how to learn more deeply about normal work. Yeah. And they look at me like, well, why the hell would they want to do that? <laughs> normal work? Isn't all work normal? <laughs> then we'd get into this deep conversation around, uh, you know, <laughs> work is imagined, work is done. <laughs> you know, we start talking through this. And if it's somebody, again, that's not kind of in this world a bit or at least has a toe in it, they're looking at you like you're insane, right? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we're just is, at a cocktail party. Why are we talking about we're talking about this? this? Is quite, well, yeah. I mean, I try not to talk. I'd rather talk about how, uh, yeah. how the 49ers are going to beat uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Is that the call? Couple. Is that the call, the 49ers? Well, that's, I don't know. I'm a bit torn. Um because I really like the Kelsey brothers. Um, and um, so my, my original team, my, my team that I've always gone for was the Packers. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I saw, um, and then we've got um, an Australian on the Eagles team, um, Jason Malala. I can't say, oh, that's really bad of me. Um, he's at one of the, one of the um, offensive linemen. Um, and then I saw a... Um, uh, a special on um, Jason Kelsey, um, and I thought, oh, he's just, he's just a kid. He's just one of us, right? Yeah. Um, and I just loved his approach. And then, um, and then, um, and then, obviously, uh, the Kelsey brothers have their podcast. If you haven't seen it, 
It's it's awesome. So I'll have to check it out. I, like, I, don't, I don't think I've heard it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a note of that because I have not yeah, listened to so it. So the Kelsey brothers have a podcast. There's Travis Kelsey, who I don't know, you probably may have heard of him because he's dating Taylor Swift. Yep. Um so but they both seem like pretty good blokes and they're very funny. So um yeah, so I'm sort of I'm going for the 49. I think I'm going for the 49ers, mainly because they've got this the um you know the four hundred thousand dollar quarterback um going up against the multi-million dollar yeah. Patrick Mahomes. So <laughs> Australia, we like to go for the underdog. So of course, yeah. Yes, yeah. I you know, I'm I am nowhere near the uh NFL fan that I probably should be, or maybe once was way back when I, I'm, I'm from Virginia originally. Uh, so we always claimed Washington. Washington was always our yeah. team, right? Um, it was a bit of a family tradition as well. A lot of my family lived in Northern Virginia at the time. And at, at that time, I don't even know if it's still there. Their original practice field was just across the line, right. Right, yeah. in Maryland and, and right, right there. So they, at that time, I, I remember listening to stories <clears throat> of some of my family members from way back when, like, yeah, you just walk up to the practice field and just watch. You know, this was long before, you know, sports yeah. espionage and kind of all the stuff, the yeah. stealing of plays and playbooks and all that kind of happens nowadays. <laughs> you know, there were no cameras attached to everything that you held back then either. Right. You can, you can just go watch. You can just go stand there and just like, there's no fence. It's just a football field out in the middle of nowhere, you know, <laughs> you just, just stand there and watch it. So I always have to root for them a bit. But then I've lived in Arizona long enough where I have to claim the Cardinals, right? Because they're they're right around the corner from me. I mean, I, I can if I can yeah. if I have enough. Uh, uh, I'm a bit vertically challenged, so I can't see very far. But if I climb on my roof, I could see I can see the stadium from my house. It's just oh, right cool. there. It's just kind of it's just flat here, so you obviously you can't uh, can't see it unless you kind of go up for a little bit of a hike into the hills. Uh, but it's just right there. So it's, uh, I have to claim them. I have to claim them, you know, but uh, yeah, I've always kind of been more of a college football fan, especially, you know, the part of the East coast where I was from kind of there in the Southeast. Oh, uh, uh, Virginia Tech Hokies all, all day, all day long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I pick on, uh, I pick on Steven Scott. I'm sure you know, Steven and yeah. uh, I pick on him quite a bit because uh, you know, he's from West Virginia. I'm from Virginia and I always poke at him for, Liking uh, West Virginia, he always pokes at me for liking Virginia Tech. Penn, Penn State, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, Penn State I go for, and Clemson. Yep, yep, yep. They're the two I like. So it's amazing, kind of in that little circle, in that little circle in the southeast. I've never seen anything else like it, right? So obviously here in Arizona, you have you have ASU, um, you know, you have U of A, you know, you have you have some some reputable good college teams, but there's mm-hmm. just not as much intensity around mm-hmm. it as what you see kind of in that Southeast region. And, but it's the same with basketball. It's the same with yeah. football. Those kind of collegiate sports in those areas, it's just intense is the only way I know to describe it. I mean, uh, neighbors will practically, you know, they'll have one will have a, a flag for this team on their, uh, on their stoop. The other one across the street will have a flag for the other one. They'll yell at each other and get into a brawl in the middle of the street over it. You know, it's just, it's just well, we, we get, um, we get college football and NFL on, on in, over here in Australia. Yeah, uh, we, we've got a couple of ESPN channels um, on our pay TV stuff. Um, but yeah, bucket list, bucket list, Sam for me is to come over and see a, a college game and an NFL game. Um, my wife was just over in uh, America late last year, and she went to a hockey game uh, in New York. Um, so she was pretty happy about that. So she doesn't follow hockey, 
but just she said the yeah. whole atmosphere and the whole spectacle was it's cool was sensational it's it's cool and, and that's one thing that's really neat if you if you make it to phoenix and it's at the t- right time the, the thing is this is it just about any time that you come to phoenix someone is playing something yeah so if you're in phoenix and you get some time. We'll go see something. I'll drag you. To, I'll drag you to see something oh, because yeah, we, we have the Coyotes here. If you're in the hockey, we obviously have the Suns. You know, yeah. we obviously have the D-backs. It's always cool to go watch yeah. a baseball game too. But uh, you just got to make sure you have about 16 hours if you're going to go watch a baseball game. I, I, I <laughs> could get back to the strike and go for five days. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's insane. No. <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't know if we still have them or not, but we we had an actual football club for a while too, Phoenix Rising. So <laughs> they're they're yeah. over near Tempe. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, it's this. Yeah. Well, actually, rugby league, which is one of our national football codes, is going over to America. Um, it'll be in Las Vegas, playing two a couple of games in Las Vegas to kick wow. off our season. Oh, that's cool. uh, in March. So if you get a chance, have a look at uh, and see how um, very big men. With no padding <laughs> to full contact football, um, you'll have a look at that. That'll get wild, huh? Any yeah. any excuse to uh, venture to Las Vegas, I'll usually take. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is much more fun than talking about safety. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just we we just go where it takes us, right? That's the- <laughs> I don't know what your listeners. <laughs> but I think I think to kind of I mean maybe to build off of that a little bit, I think it's this. And I know that it's rich, you know, and I always say that it's rich coming from someone that's written a bunch of books with the word safety on it. Um, it's interesting. It's good to see that I think we're finally starting to outgrow that that sole focus on safety and safety-related stuff. Yeah. You know, because to your point, you know, it was it, this idea around curiosity. I, I just don't understand how we would only or or hyper-focus on just this kind of safety word as if it's magical. Right, that we get so overly focused on that that we lose sight of so much else that's happening yeah. in our work worlds, yeah. and it's kind of to something that you were saying. You're mentioning doing learning teams, and you know I see this within organizations uh, that so often a, a learning team a safety might be the start of it, a safety something the trigger, right? It's it could trigger. be a safety something. That machine gives me the heebie-jeebies, and it's mm. it it eats people. So we're gonna we're gonna start some operational learning around this thing. It has a high potential of eating people, right? But I've not been a part of a learning team uh, uh, ever. I, I just can't think of a single situation where you start with safety something and you don't learn a whole bunch about everything else, mm. right? And it's the same thing with maybe quality is the start of that, or this is a an efficiency or a a machine reliability, something, a process breakdown, uh, something here, something there, that it doesn't usually stuff emerge in all of those things that we would normally bucket stuff into, right? It's, they're, all, they're all outcomes. They're all outcomes of work. It's just the story of work. It's they're just outcomes yeah. of any work, and, and and you know, and and Chirac talks about the, those principles of safety of safety and and. And and how and the thing I like is is thinking about is is principles about emergence and equivalence, where the outcomes safety being one of them emerge out of the entire system, mm-hmm. and they're equivalent in that the good and the bad, same system, yeah, same system, doesn't care. So yeah, I think that, you know I think I'd love to um, relabel 
safety roles as continual improvement specialists, baby. Yeah. And that's so, their role. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're there to provide continual improvement in the organisation. And the one way to do that, uh, and one of the most effective ways to do it is through organisational learning. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that, so it's back to a point that you were making a minute ago, you know, this, I think the most effective practitioners in this more tra traditionally labeled kind of safety space, they're curious. Curious. They're, they're curious and they, they seek to understand. They're not, they don't view their role as a, they don't sit in judgment and, and look down, down their nose over their glasses at people with a rule book in one hand and a write up in the other. They don't do those things. They don't view their role as judgmental. They view their role more as a facilitator, as a curious learner within the organization, okay. as a facilitator of deep and meaningful conversations within, within an organization. They see themselves as a, as a connector. Right, as a storyteller within an organization of taking the story of operational reality and telling that story extremely well up and throughout their organization. And I noticed some folks out there that are maybe in that extreme traditional role, they hear what I'm saying and they hear it as kind of woohoo, kind of like out there in space, like incense burning and you know, but it's not, right? It's a very that's a very those are very tactical things that I just described. And yeah, those right. folks that, that come across in the organizations that approach their role in some form, shape, or fashion is just some of the stuff that I kind of rambled off there. Um, they're, it's, they're so much more effective. Your life is so much easier, and you create so much more improvement within the organization yeah. than what we have ever historically done in no. the past with just this really heavy-handed rule-based approach, compliance-based yeah. approach. You know, because it's as as you were kind of saying before with the OSHA thing, you know, the the odd thing here is is that, you know, OSHA is looked at as this big scary monster, at least in some ways, until an organization reaches a certain tipping point, in which OSHA citations and fines and their powers really aren't. I mean, it's like it's almost like a nuisance cost to some yeah. organizations, anyways, right? Like okay, yeah, okay, just write them the check and get them the heck out of here. Are they here? Deny them entry and call our attorneys, right? It's it's not even that it's so tooth and claw. Be able to push back. Exactly right. It, but what's what's wild about that? I think to me is is that many of these organizations that are at that point of having all of these resources, of having all that ability to drive innovation, while also meeting the minimums of compliance and making it highly efficient easy to meet those minimums of compliance. Those same organizations are the ones that will point to OSHA and say, oh, they're holding us back from innovating. When mm -hmm. I don't know it's so much that it's OSHA that's holding us from innovating, it's not so much of their fear, as I think it's their justification to remain static, to I kind of may remain set in their old ways. Yeah. Oh, we, we have a bit of the same issue in Australia, I think, too, with our regulators in terms of um, sometimes our regulators overreach. Yep. And um, there's a real reluctance from organisations to push back and say, so, well, hang on, um, the legislation and regulation says this. It doesn't say, just because you interpret it that way, doesn't make you right. We interpret it differently. It yeah. doesn't, you know, uh, for, for instance, there's very few regulations in Australia that require you to do an investigation. Uh, in, in fact, most of them are probably around the Environmental Protection Agency stuff. Uh, which, um, But in terms of safety, there's nothing in our regulations in Australia that require uh, 
a, an investigation. They require you to notify the regulator on some on, for some um, events, mm-hmm. but they don't require an investigation. But then the regulator turns around and says, well, I want the copy of the investigation. Well, hang on. Well, you, you're not entitled to that. Like, it doesn't say in the Act or the regulations you're entitled to that. Um, and then they, they, they try and catch them with these directions and orders and things, which probably push their boundaries of what they're entitled to do. Yeah. Uh, but organisations just don't push back. Oh, we can't annoy them. We can't annoy them. But their powers of, yeah, their powers of fines aren't huge unless they go to court. Yeah. And then they might go to court and we a judge can award a significant cost, but not the regulator. So we just need to, you know, again, curiosity you know, there's people in these positions need to be curious and 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 actually see what the what things say they're meant to do and what they're meant to comply with, um, and then test those waters with their legal advice, yeah. and and go from there. Um, but no, rather than as you said, they're set in their ways. They don't want to change, right? Well, it's it's so, always interesting to me because you hear that uh, plethora of excuses, and 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 I use that term not with a point on the end of it. Because uh, there, there's there are a ton of different reasons why organizations tend to be slow to change, right? Uh, this is just one path of, of I'm sure, uh, hundreds if not thousands, right? Yeah. That we could that we could go down. Uh, but I, I hear that a lot, and I, I heard that a lot working internal to organizations, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot too, where it's I mentioned that we kind of point to the regulator and say, but they won't let us. And there's but there's rarely if ever something that says that they won't let us, right? Uh-huh. I've heard this internal to organization where they point at their own legal department and say, but they won't let us, yeah. right? And when you go talk to the attorneys, they're like, what the hell, we never said that. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> or they'll, they'll point to, to some some leader far, far away and say, but they won't let us, right? And it's yeah. just this kind of, this, this mix of, well, we don't really want to change kind of how we've done things. This is comfortable to us. The this, this stasis feels comfortable. And that's probably interesting what I found, at least with the bit of folks uh, throughout regulators that I've interfaced with here in the States, is that most of them, when you start talking, hop. And especially when you start talking to them down this path of critical risk and life-saving controls and safeguards, they're going, you're talking my language. This is exactly where we want to go, right? And same thing with legal folks. When I've when I've had the opportunity, many companies that I spent time with, they drag their legal folks in to hear what I have to say. Uh, I'm sure you get that too. They're going to drag in a couple of folks to make sure legal hears what's being said here, so make sure we're not getting some weird, wacky, wonky territory. Uh, and almost always, they walk away going, "This is good. This is more conversation, more transparency. How how can oh. I be? A, this gives me even as an as an attorney, even if I'm just thinking of this from a very black and white legal perspective, we're capturing." conversation we're encouraging conversation we're encouraging reporting we're growing those things that's yeah. how can i be upset with you so stop pointing at me as the reason why, why we're exactly. why we can't, exactly. can't change a little bit yeah. <laughs> yeah it's wild here because you end up with at least historically from my experience being on the receiving end of uh regulators or at least the first one to meet many of them at the gate <laughs> of a facility and say, uh, can you please return when our legal counsel is present? <laughs> right? Or being the one to shuffle them into a windowless conference room and do everything except turn the lights off on them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being being forced into that position working internal to some companies. Uh yeah, you know, it's it's always interesting to me. 
again, to see kind of that fear when you're just dealing with other folks, you're just dealing with, with those regulators. Now, where I was going with this, though, was that it tends to sway here in the States yeah. between OSHA in particular driving more towards we're here to provide consultation to organizations. Yeah. It will then sway to, no, we're here to be with the stick in the floggings and issue citations to be the enforcers. It tends to sway, you know, and I'm, I won't go down this rabbit hole too much. I'll just say that it tends to sway with what political powers are in power at the yeah. time, right? So uh, just about every every change up for us in the White House, it tends to go in a little bit of a this yeah. direction for a little while, that direction for a little while, this direction for yeah. a little while, that direction for a little while, which is a, just another interesting dynamic, I think, that is applied to that. That, yeah. you know, one month you're working with OSHA and they're there to help. Yeah. <laughs> the next the next, the next year they're showing up as, I'm OSHA and I'm here to uh, give you the citation. Thanks. Thanks for yeah. your uh, tax dollars. <laughs> so in, in Australia, we have, um, so if you get prosecuted, so we have the same, exactly the same thing. So we've got this dual role of the regulator who's providing advice on one hand and prosecuting on the other. Um, the problem with that is, is that we're not actually seeing real improvements um, yeah. being delivered because um, it, doesn't work, it doesn't work well. What I'd love to see, and I've got to yet start this conversation, um, is moving to a different style of, of prosecution. So... When we have a, a fatality event, rather than just go down straight, um, you know, prosecution style, but rather more a coronial style where um, it's more based on that that French um, judicial system where a magistrate sits up top and they have people work for them. And the idea is just to get the truth, yeah, right, to actually come up with the truth. So it's not about punishment. It's about improvement. It's about learning. It's about understanding. And I think um, we use it um, in, in family law in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. We use it in um, non-workplace fatalities in Australia with the coroner's court type thing. Uh, but we don't use it for health and safety. And I think I think that would be a massive change. And, and I also think the government needs to split out the role. I think there needs to be one role. Yep, you're the prosecution team. You're the cops. You're the police. Yeah. You sit over there and you do your business. Yeah. And then have a department that's purely designed to to to, to lift organisations up, provide that really good advice and upskill, yeah. particularly small organisations. Exactly. They don't have, yeah. It's very um, then, it's very disproportionate, right? Oh, especially when you're talking about dealing dealing with with regulators. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially uh, in, and I mean this in a positive sense, in our world that tends to grow uh, more fair and equitable, it seems like, yeah. daily, um, that doesn't tend to extend to uh, entities. Right? No. <laughs> especially when you're talking about mom and pop down the street that's in a drywall business. They've got five employees, five employees that they've kept employed for the past 25 years. They're a staple of the community. You know, I think about it the way that this plays out, uh, that same mom and pop, it, it faces this on several different fronts, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they've they've got that, uh, and let me, I'll round that number up to uh, 10 because, again, I'm a recovery and safety professional, but I think it's 10 employees where uh, OSHA officially kicks into many things in right. the world. So let's just say 10 or 15 folks. Uh, and so they're exposed to that regulator the same, the same as the behemoth corporation two blocks over with, with 7,500 employees and all the money in the world, 
right? Again, back to that employer that sees that more as well. OSHA came to one of our locations. Uh, they issued us this long list of citations. Yep, we fixed it. We responded to it. We had to pay a citation. Whoop, no big deal. That's just the cost yep. of doing business here. You know, that same that same thing to that mom and pop is it, They're out of business. Crippling. it's done. It's done. There's the boards are over the windows. Those 10 or 15 folks that have worked there for the past 30 years are gone. You know, and that, that's, that's it. That's it. You know, and then same thing for that same mom and pop that may be going to work as a contractor for that large entity mm. two blocks over. I think about the same way that we apply this kind of broad, this broad blanket to them as mm. if the 10, 15 person contractor is the same as the 50,000 strong contractor, putting them through the same kind of evaluations. That mom and pop contractor, because all of that still is typically built on incident rates, right? Mom and pop contractor has a, a fatality on the road. They're done. They have a yeah. fatality driving from point A to point B. They're done. They're not getting contracts with that company ever again, at least huh. until enough time passes, right, for yeah. that to – and by the time that does or they accumulate enough man hours for that to uh, be absorbed, then, yeah. uh, again, back to back out of business, <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's far it's far more disproportionate. No, it's it's you know, ridiculous. And the laws the, are in against them. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I joke about that. Uh it's it's kind of it's one of those situations where you uh if you uh if you didn't laugh about it, you would cry, right? So it's usually a mixture of laughter and sobbing, but uh as Pro business, with my air quotes here, as we are, we seem to be very anti-small business here in the United States in a lot of ways, right? because again, these all of these things tend to affect those more. Just it's it's just much rougher on them, you know. Well, I think small business are the largest employers in this country. Yeah, small business employ more people. Um, small business and self-employed. There's more self-employed business, yeah, than than yeah. big business in this uh, country. Yeah, yeah. All the laws are pretty much skewed for big business and not for the small business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, what's wild to me there is, especially with you know these small businesses, and, and hearing kind of what you described, I, I, I really appreciate an idea like that because, you know, something's got to give there in the way that we regulate because we're we're very similar, right, in that sense, that it it feels a bit incestuous. That mm. the same people, as we were kind of mentioning, because you talked a bit about maybe breaking those two things into separate entities, the same folks mm. that are there one day, and technically it's probably different people, it's different departments probably yeah. internal to the same conglomerate of regulation, right? Yeah. Uh, the same people, though, the same people, same same logo on the hard hat that shows up, you know, the hard hat that's not yeah. scratched with the fresh gloves that are still starched, you know, uh, the same people that were telling you, oh, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. The very next day, say, here's where you got it wrong. Here's where you got it wrong. Here's what I got wrong. Here's your, uh, here's some papers that say that you need to be in court on this date. And if you don't come to court on this date, we're going to come find you. Guys with guns will come find you. <laughs> it feels a bit incestuous that those, that those two things are in the same house. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. Well, the regulators themselves don't like it. I'm sure. I'm sure. They, they don't. And that that that's back to back to um, at least my experience with them, and the folks that I've got to know personally uh, over the years uh, that are in that world, um, they're not in as they're not any happier about it than we are, yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Again, they're just mostly mostly they're mostly mm -hmm. just like anything else. You find good folks trying to do good work and trying to do it for the right reasons. 
and they usually find themselves hogtied by a mountain of bureaucracy and a system that's rigged against them. (laughs) (laughs) So I think a really interesting perspective, you know, would be to really hear, especially from the tactical practitioner side of, of, of regulators. So, well, what does the better world look like? Right. What what does that look like where you feel that you can actually make the difference that I'm sure that you signed up to make a difference for, right? What what does that look like? Well, I've been I've been working with some of the regulators here in Australia. And um uh there's a mix, there's a mix like there is on the other side of the fence, in that some of them are there, um, they believe they want to make workplaces safer. They generally want to make workplaces yeah. safer. Some of them believe it'll be done by compliance. Mm-hmm. Hard stick, and some of them believe it'll be done with support. Yeah, uh, and some believe it's a mixture. So there's a, re- yeah. it's, it's. I think it's a they because they are just really essentially a reflection or, or a micro, uh, like a like a an extract of the rest of society. Yeah. Um, so then then they they've got the same mix that we find in most organisations that do these sort of roles. So um, what we're finding in Australia that a lot of the um, inspectors and investigators that are in the regulator. Are all, a lot of them are ex um, ex police officers now, mm-hmm. so that's a bit of a challenge because yeah. they don't understand industrial manufacturing work, um, but they do understand investigation and prosecution. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. When it's interesting, you know, because I think that it's the kind of the to touch on what you're saying there, that kind of mix. Um, I think. Probably just Sam's humble opinion when we kind of go through those things. We obviously apply a, a good amount of guesswork as we just kind of talk through them. But the, the right answer probably rests somewhere in the middle of those things. The middle path is usually the the, the path, right? Because I, we, we obviously can't look at it through the lens of rose-colored glasses where it's like, well, all employers are good because that's not true, right? Uh-huh. And we can't look at it through all employers are shitheads because that's not true. And I would, I, I would venture a guess that it probably falls into kind of that same idea that we speak so much about within our worlds of the vast majority of them are probably good companies trying to do good work, right? Try, be a right? right exactly. Be a yeah, the vast majority of them are just mostly good folks, good companies. Are you going to get the extreme outliers? <laughs> Are you yeah. again, talking talking to some of those folks in that regulation space? Some of the horror stories. I mean, oh. absolute horror stories that you hear. I, I was listening to one not that long ago about. Um, I, I, I don't want to give too much of it away because it was in a bit in kind of confidence. But the the, the kind of overarching theme of this was locking employees inside of structures from the outside so they couldn't leave to take breaks, like with padlocks and stuff. Like, I don't know what that definition means, but to me, that sounds like a lot like kidnapping. <laughs> well, mate, like, I'd hate to bring this one up. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So, exactly, exactly. And so, and when they talk to them, they're like, yeah, but wow. they, were leave, they were going outside and they were taking too many smoke breaks and we couldn't have that. They need to be in there doing what, what, what they're doing. And that's not allowed. And so we come and we let them out for the breaks. And then they go back in. We lock and make sure they they can't. Oh, sorry, they're not servants, right? No, no, no. These are pay, yeah, payroll. These are payroll tax employees. But this is this is in America. Yeah. I won't. This I won't even third world country. I, I won't. I won't even give. I won't even give give the state right. But uh, yeah, it's here. It's here. Oh and the, the the employer was just like, well, what's wrong with that? 
I mean, it's like, and obviously this, uh, this, this regulator, this, this uh, was obviously enforcement, right? Um, they're like, you understand that not only are you like, like we're calling the sheriff's department because you're breaking many criminal laws here as well. But from our yeah. standpoint, like what happens if the building catches on fire? Where are you at? How are you going to get these folks? What happens if somebody has a stroke? Like just go, just going through the list of all the does, right. Uh, that seems so obvious to us as we're just kind of cringing here going like, what the hell do you mean? They like people like, you know, but again, it, it, that idea that all employers are good is obviously insane. Uh, right. It's, it's just not logical, but I would on that spectrum, the vast majority of employers do not lock their employees in the workplace so they can't take smoke breaks. Do they exist and do we need an enforcement, uh, uh, some form of enforcement with some pretty sharp teeth probably to deal with those types of situations? I would say probably, yeah. I would, yeah. In my opinion, I would say a strong yes. Right? It, it, it's got to be that balance, right? And it's all about balance. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Finding finding what that looks like to where it is supportive, to where it does provide that level of support without crippling small businesses, without kneecapping them, saying yeah. this, you know, that making that barrier to entry so high that only the the mega of the most mega corporations can exist in that ecosystem is obviously yeah. not the right way either. But finding what that looks like in the middle, I think is is probably going to be a very interesting thing that takes place as we continue to innovate over the years, because those conversations are happening. You know, when I talk to folks and you're talking to those folks, so they hear this conversations we're having, they're safety folks. And some of them are recovering safety folks too. (laughs) Working in those spaces going change. We need some change. We need some change. And that, that will happen. Curiosity are learning the ones without art. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a very interesting, exciting, it's an exciting time, I think, that we find ourselves in. If it wasn't for this, uh, I would have left this industry yeah. um, 10 years ago. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, share I, this, I share this story a bunch, but uh, I'd gotten so tired of our traditional approaches. And let me put it this way. I got so tired of how shitty we treated people. Yeah. In this blame, shame, retrain loop that we get into in organizations. I got so tired of that as a safety practitioner that I remember that conversation that I had in my head sitting in at a desk at a power yeah. plant. And I'm going, I, I literally had that conversation in my head. And I don't think it was out loud. I hope it wasn't out loud. Um, but the conversation was basically, I will live under a bridge before I do this another day for a living. I just cannot do this anymore. I, I, I was thinking to myself, this is what it's like. And this is my life. I'll just go back to operations. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, that's me. I'll just yeah. go back to operations uh, because I'm not making a difference here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. So, and for me, and that's, the- that's what it boiled down to was exactly that. It wasn't making – it wasn't being helpful. For me, it's there's the strong dose of needing to be helpful. I like to be helpful. Oh. Right? And I, in yeah. so many of those roles, you find yourself being more hurtful than helpful, it felt like. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's where, you know – Around that same time, um, I'd already started to do things a bit differently, but yeah. back to getting kneecapped. I worked in very traditional organizations to get kneecapped at every turn. Yeah. <laughs> Tried to blame. Maybe we shouldn't blame and sh- like, no, no, no. This You don't understand. You don't understand safety. This is how we do these things. <laughs> I was working in mining, right? underground mining, which is pretty high risk. Yeah. Um, and, and pretty hands-on. So, you know, you've got a lot of 
people hands on, you know, bodies close to the work, manual labour. And one year, genuinely, we didn't have a lost time injury for 12 months. And I know this is a bad metric and I, you know, understand mm -hmm. that. Um, but we had a target um, metric we had to, to make. And it was like, I don't know, three or four LTIFR or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And we had zero. And then I remember um, they go, okay, well, that's cool. You know, we haven't hurt anyone. It was genuine. I mean, we'd done, we'd done so much work to try and make things better and safer, a lot of engineering stuff, a lot of isolation, a lot of higher order hierarchy control stuff to do that. And then I remember talking to my head office because, um, and, the, and I said, well, how are you going to set our target for this year for it? Because even though we didn't like the targets and didn't want them, we still had to live with them. And they said, well, everyone has a 20% reduction on what they achieved the year before. And I said, well, well we achieved zero. What's our target going to be 20% below that? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, what? So I've got to get like 20% of my workforce. And I know that's not the right number. Um, healthier. They've got to actually leave in better shape um, for the year than what they started for the year. <laughs> yeah. Like, how ridiculous is that? And I just and I just hung up that phone and I've just gone, we live what? in this world right that's 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 where you kind of go i'm living in the land of make-believe oh my god right? and, and, and you want to you really want to ask that 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 uh you really want to go down that path of like i think we need to have a deeper conversation do you realize that we're all dying right you realize that we're all like you almost have to go full full like meta oh. conversation on the universe, right? To, to, to almost outgrow some of that stuff. And that's the same. That's when we started changing how we're doing things. You know, yeah. I, we start, and even then, that was before I'd even heard of of, of Todd or Sydney yeah. or Eric or um, Bob Edwards or Andrew or any of those same. people. Yeah. Um, I started changing because I think because I, I remember looking in a room once when we're doing a safety meeting, and no one, ninety people, no one cared. Three people were asleep because they were snoring. Um, and I've gone, this is making a difference. So I wanted to, I said, no, nah. that's when I went to the office and I had my little meltdown yep. and said, like, I'm either, either I change what I'm doing now or I get out of what I'm doing. And yeah. then we started changing things and we saw the difference. Yeah. Uh, and we, and basically we started changing the things within our control that I could control. And, um, fortunately I had a fair bit of control with what I could do. Um, and we saw immediate impacts in change in terms of engagement um almost immediately um because we, we we just said yeah let's just do it and i, and I had supportive leadership yeah. um and without supportive leadership you can't do anything exactly you know it's hard it's hard and because the the big traditional contractors that i worked for for about the first half of my career so about the first half of my career i was a bit nomadic in the sense that I was a bit of a nuclear nomad and a project nomad, and I worked for large-scale contractors in the power maintenance and construction world. Uh, here for six months, there for two years, here for a week, there for two years, you know, type of stuff, that that, that kind of work. All, all contract-dependent type of stuff, large yeah. contractor world. And so it was such an interesting dynamic to try to affect change uh, because if you, the organization that I worked for, if you ask them what their product was, they, they were very big on telling you what their product was and their product was, we sell man hours. Yeah. 
not we provide services, not we, 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 we work on power plants. We sell man hours. And as many of those as can be seconded man hours, that's what we prefer. We sell man hours and everything that you do in your role should be somehow related to selling man hours to a client. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we want to applaud them for their transparency or (laughs) they knew what they knew how they made their money at least. Right. That's it. But you you were at the you were caught in this interesting position almost always where about half the workforce that you had as a leader for that site, about half of it, maybe a little more than half or sometimes a little less, would work directly for you. About the other half would be seconded directly to the client, so under the client's day-to-day supervision. And it was a really interesting dynamic because to try to affect change in that type of world where you have a very traditional client, no matter how forward thinking that particular organization might have desired to be, they were at the will of the client and they viewed themselves at the will of the client and not wanting to take any chance on maybe losing out on selling more of those man hours. If the client came over and whispered in someone's ear and said, hey, you know, you need to get rid of that person because of that event, that's what would happen. Yeah. Uh, Simply put, that's that's how that worked. So we started to tweak and change and do what we could and eventually started to drag that particular client, the last one that I was with, more so than most, kind of along on this journey of like, we're not making stuff better. This isn't making anything better. We know, you know, those conversations. And we eventually started to see some return on that. We eventually started to see some change. But then as I found myself working internally, because I was eventually poached by the utilities themselves to work internal to the utilities, um, you know, I found really uh, interesting, big, old, old utilities. That well, I think the most surprising thing to me was how innovative they were in certain spaces and how much they glaringly lacked it where they really needed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially around things like what we're talking about, right? Oh, you know, yeah. when, when I first walked into uh, work internal to you know these utilities, massive, sometimes quite literally ivory towers, you know, the energy is expensive. <laughs> you know? And uh, you find these workforces that are just hungry for change, ready for it. As you were kind of mentioning frontline leaders that are going, we need to do something different. You know, we, we, we need to change some stuff. And the farther you seem to go up as Todd always so famously used the stick picture, right? Yes. As you kind of go up towards that blunt end, I think what was the most surprising to me at kind of that leader level or a high level leader level in these organizations is how much they cared, but how much they were oblivious to how brutal it actually was down through the organization. Yeah. And they just had well, never really sought out an understanding yeah. of what that operational reality had looked like. And once they once they got their first dose of it, they were in. They're like, holy, God, it, it all looks so great from up here. Once they got yeah. their first hit of of that true story of operational reality, not to sound too crude, but they were a bit like a crack addict. <laughs> like we need to know more. We need more of this. We need more of this. We need the yeah. truth. How do we get that? How do we well, get the true uh, story work? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, like what they do is well-intentioned. They put a lot of money into Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, but they just don't know better. And the thing is when, when, when those people that further along that stick, um, the Todd group, the thing is they have their own operational realities of their, exactly. their own day-to-day constraints. They have their, exactly. they're, they're not, but they, they're not looking at this stuff. They don't have the time to go and find this stuff. They're trying to keep people employed. They're trying to sell. They're trying to sell. They're trying to keep the revenue going. They've got shareholders. They've got they've got so many things. Like 
they can, they work, you know, just there's a misconception sometimes that people at the top of the company don't work hard. They can no. be some of the hardest working people in any company. I had uh, I had a unique view, especially as I found myself in the hot seat of leading. Um, at the time, we didn't even call it Hop. We didn't really know what to call it at the time until we kind of discovered Todd and Hop and kind of all those different things. We eventually landed on some internal branded something, as companies do. <laughs> we, we, it's not worth doing if we can't come up with a fancy poster, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we eventually had some type of branding for that internally, which I'm not going to say because it's probably trademarked or something. I'll get sued. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I had the the unique opportunity uh, to be granted basically uninterrupted, unobscured access to executives and even select members on the board of this particular organization. And what came along with that was the ability that, uh, that they shared their calendars with me. And to get to see just a glimpse of what those folks deal with oh. each and every day, because basically we had a bit of an agreement that if I'm going to come talk to you, I can do it when I want to. <laughs> like if you're if you're serious about this kind of change, we need yeah. to be able to talk. Right? Yeah. I don't want to go through the admins that are three floors beneath you to be able yeah. to come up and talk to you in the super secret executive elevator. Like I just I want to yeah. you make my badge work and I want to come up and talk to you. <laughs> right? So I had a bit of that access to that calendar, but it always shocked me because again, I think back to that and I think about looking at that and going, well, they started their day at five, five a.m. And by eight, so they're in the building at five. They have to leave at eight because they have to get across town because they're meeting with a state senator at nine. And then they're going to cut a ribbon on something at noon. And then they're back here for a three-hour meeting with legal. And then the calendar goes till like 9 p.m. most days and yeah. extends into the weekend. And so I'm yeah. with you. I, I, always, uh, I always try to dispel any of those illusions that there's this um, lack of, of uh, work that's yeah. happening at those levels because that's just simply not true. I think a really interesting thing is I kind of mentioned those first doses of operational reality. Um, when we first started on that, on that journey, one of the first things that we realized we needed to do is we needed to operationally learn and we needed to do that rapidly. We needed to do that first. We really yeah. needed to discover where we were at. So we kind of started with these super secret closed door conversations where we were, you know, locking the door and like-minded folks were having conversations that would usually get us fired because they would say, well, you're insane or you don't care about safety because you don't believe all events are preventable, those kind of basic things, right? So we kind of had already, in a non-traditional sense, formed a bit of a hop team, right? A hop, yeah, hop yeah, yeah. air quotes team. But we went out and we spent time talking to the workforce. And this this group of folks was made up of frontline folks and folks like me and a couple leaders, but a good chunk of them were frontline folks. So frontline folks talking to other frontline folks and talking to managers and talking to directors and talking to executives and talking to board members and capturing this story, the story of what, what the organization where it was really at, right, where yeah. things were truly at. And where I'm going with this is I think one of the most interesting outcomes of that, other than giving us this really vivid picture of where we're at, allowing us to have a starting point for where we want to go, um, as we told that story and we told that story extremely well up and throughout the organization, the ability for industrial empathy to grow was amazing because yeah. the frontline folks had historically viewed the executive role as kind of wearing a monocle, mm. like a suit and a tie in an office, sipping scotch, yeah. smoking cigars, 
like plotting how they were going to make their lives terrible. Mad Men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the best way that I always describe it is like if you if you picture that movie uh, that that scene out of a movie where they're in like a like a 1970s or 80s law office. You know what I'm yeah. talking about where it's like the wood paneling and the fake gold yeah. stuff yeah. and you know kind of a thin layer of smoke laying over from, you know, puffing on cigars. Don't get me wrong, I love a good cigar just as much as the next person. Uh, but it's that it's like they're they're putting golf balls into their empty scotch glasses, you know, after they chug a couple bottles of scotch type of stuff. But then from the executive perspective, down what was interesting is they viewed people down through the organization as not as caring as they were. They yes. took this way seriously, way more seriously than anybody else did. They worked way harder than anybody else did. The frontline viewed the executives the same way. They don't take this as seriously as we do. We work way harder than they do. As that story kind of happened and they got to kind of really tap into each other's perspectives yeah. from that sprouted industrial empathy, it, it, it grew this perspective of like, wait a second, like there's just, we're just people and yeah. they're working yeah. hard and I'm working hard and we kind of have same shared values, goals, beliefs, like we're not enemies. Like this is a, like we're here cause we want to be here. Like how do we figure this thing out together? It was a very interesting byproduct of all of that initial work that allowed us to grow some of that, that uh, perspective yeah, I mean, because to that stick thing, I always, I always share it like that, that it's, it's, it's very easy to uh, take that at the surface and go, well, employees have, have better information. This is not true. Hmm. It's not that employees and leaders have better or worse information. It's just different. Yeah. It's just information. It's just different. Like I, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's yeah. a different operational reality. Exactly. And varying amounts of authority and resources. And exactly. when you can pull those two perspectives together, when you can bridge that gap a little bit through operational learning, you can make some pretty cool things happen. Well, that's it because it's trust, right? You can't do anything without trust. So it just builds trust. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, to me, I think that's an often, I don't want to call it overlooked, but I don't think we toot that horn enough that learning yeah. teams are an extension of trust. Well, they, well, they can't they can't happen without trust. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. and, and so, you know, the, the, the management needs to trust that there'll be an outcome out of that learning team and the workers need to trust there'll be an outcome that comes out of that working team, um, the learning team and, 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 it's so uh, it all falls down without trust. It's just that it is the single foundation stone for a learning team is trust. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and without it, so you know, and, and that's the thing. So organisations need to build this. And 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 one of the things that I often talk when I'm talking with organisations about learning teams is is that yeah, we we can we can facilitate a learning team, but they just can't happen in isolation by themselves. The same tenants, the same principles that underpin a learning team need to underpin management. Yeah. You know, it's that operational ethos. It's that it's that operating philosophy um, and trust. Um, it's all about trust. So even Todd's five principles are all about trust. Yeah. It's all about gaining trust because one of the things um, that, I, that, that I say is that you, you because it's all about managing risk, right? So it's all about managing risk. Um, you can't manage what you don't know and you don't understand. Yeah. And organisational learning is about finding things you don't know about because the stuff you do know about, you can manage. The stuff that you don't know about, you can't manage it, and you certainly can't manage it if you don't understand it either. 
Yeah. So you really need to have that deep understanding and that and that knowledge of that risk. And too often organisations are stuck in managing stuff they know, not the discovery of stuff they don't know and understand. You know I can't not put the funky stuff in there now, though. I like this. Oh, this is a good jam, right? Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, you don't see me, but I'm flailing my arms around and dancing in my office. I'm getting, I'm getting funky, right? You got you to gotta get funky from time to time. But really, the reason why I pop in here is, well, what do you think about it? It's awesome, right? It's so great to get to catch up and chat with Mark. Mark's just awesome. It's been far too long since we've had him on the podcast. But it's super exciting that he's here because this marks a bit of a transition in our conversation, and that's why I'm here, not, not just to to brag about how much I love this uh, funky music that we're throwing in here and there now and again, but to tell you that he's going to talk about some stuff that I think you're going to find really useful. You probably heard mention of the white papers throughout a bit of our conversation. Those white papers should now be out, so go follow along with Mark. Go check out his website. Go dig those things up and reach out to Mark uh, if you want some more information on this stuff, but, but I think you're going to find it Super duper useful because I know that this is the kind of stuff that working internal to organizations that we were looking for something to better our approach to that instant incident, that incident investigation. Ick, you know, ick, I don't like calling them incident investigations, but that something to replace or at least to better or maybe even burn and just replace our more traditional investigation processes within our organizations, the stuff that's like, go take 14 witness statements and then compare and find who's lying so we can punish them, you know, that kind of stuff. I think you're going to find what Mark's going to talk about really refreshing. So I wanted to pop in and say that. So make sure you go find that stuff. And I also wanted to say that I'm not going to pop back in at the end. We're just going to cut this thing right on out of here once we get done. He's going to give you a bit of an overview about those papers and things like that. So I'm going to tell you, love you, mean it, bye right now. I'm also going to tell you to go check out the website, www.thehopnerd.com. Make sure that you're following along on social media, LinkedIn in particular. That's where I share most of my stuff. And make sure that you're following along with Mark and the awesome work that he's doing in this space. So until next time, here's me and Mark chatting about those papers and uh, love you, mean it, bye. No, wait. Cue the funky music in three, two, one. So basically, um, there's two white papers we've 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 written, and I've written them with um, uh, Yop Havinga, who um, uh, is a has his PhD PhD out of Griffith University. Uh, so the same university as um, Drew Ray and. Um, Dave Proven did his through there, and, and Sydney Decker works there. So he helped me. He helped me. Uh, so we co-wrote these papers together. Um, and um, so, but I'm just going to give you an, an extract of. I'm not going to go yeah, through yeah. them, but um, with with um, at some stage, hopefully, we can. Um, I'll, I'll 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 send them back to you, and what we'll be publishing them next week. And nice. um, if you want to do anything with with them, you can. Um, so the first thing is that what we call an event learning assessment. So basically what it is, is a way of triaging how we and what we learn from when a, when some sort of incident or event occurs. So typically what we've done, um, particularly in Australia, is classify them according to just straight up outcome. Mm-hmm. If it's a, if it's a uh, lost time injury, it requires a really high level investigation. Um, 
And so we've we've connected them to our injury classifications, um, which predominantly for us in Australia are made up, and I know in America you, uh, they use OSHA. Yeah. Um, it's probably tried- the same. The same yeah. similar, I would assume. Because ours is very similar to that. It's all, you know, it's a recordable, lost time recordable type yeah. stuff. It's It kind of falls in those categories. And then most companies tend to mirror their internal level of investigatory efforts based off of severity of outcome. Excellent. Yeah. So this is an alternative to that. Um, so basically it's moving from investigating everything to looking where there is that opportunity for an organisation to learn. Mm-hmm. It's really focused on risk. Um, it takes into account, you know, like at the end of the day, investigations are always breaking work. Very few organisations have have a um, dedicated investigation team or right. you know or learning team or, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so it's always break-in work. Um, so there's a cost. We've already you know affected the cost in harm, and there's additional cost in, in whatever type of investigating and learning we want to do. Um, and what we're looking for is this focus on quality, um, and also and, and, and understanding the constraints of operations. So this is the triage. Um, system that we came up with. We've spent considerable amount of time coming up with these questions that, um, and, and there's science behind it. And the white paper um, demonstrates the science we've got behind while we're moving in this direction. So the first thing is, if there's a credible potential for a critical event, then you're going to do a high level investigation. So in, in this graphic, it's the blue line because that's our methodology that we look at, we, we use, which compares work as intended Work has happened and work has done. Yeah. Uh, work is normal. So, um, if it's got to be credible potential, because if we nearly could have killed someone credibly, that's an organisational failure, right? So, that's the only link where we go there. The next one is about: is it notifiable to some sort of regulator? And there's an opportunity for organisational learning. Then we'll do a high level investigation. Now. It's two parts to that. So A, it's got to be notifiable to a regulator, and B, there must be organisational learning. And I'll explain what that organize what we mean by organisational learning is in a minute. Then we do that high level. The middle, the middle level is basically did the event involve failures, absence of critical controls? So so we we you know we just noticed that you know we've, we've got some critical control failures happening. We didn't we couldn't have killed someone, there wasn't potential for that. But what we're going to do there is either a high-level investigation like a blue line or we're going to run a learning team. Yeah. And that's a conversation with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the relevant manager. Um, this is where it starts to get interesting. So if we had minor medium harm and there's an opportunity for organisational learning, we're going to do what we call an event insight. And that's the second white paper I'm going to talk about. An event insight is an alternative to like a five whys type style of investigation. So, and you'll see what that's based like in a minute. And the last one here is probably what most organisations are really going to struggle with. Um, If there was minor, medium harm, and there's little or no opportunity for organisational learning, then just record it and close it out. So you need to give yourself permission as an organisation not to investigate something. Yeah, sure, someone got hurt, Someone might have even broken an arm, but there's nothing to learn here. Like that was a pure accident. There's nothing here worth learning. 
We're going to record it. We're going to make sure they get the care they need and we're going to move on. So it's really important, that last one as well. So yeah. um, well, I, I, I have to tell you that this is a, I love this so far because it's such an interesting conversation that we have around operational learning in general Yeah, is we've tended to be so hung up on severity or potential severity of outcome yeah. or just the fact that there was an outcome. So a conversation I have a lot with organizations around because we tend to drive them towards this question uh, similar to where you're going is, is this learning rich? And I, yeah. it's a, it's a very vague question. And what I appreciate so much about what you're doing here is that you're, you're, you're really putting some meat on that bone a little bit around that question of, of is this learning rich? You're giving folks a little bit of a, a framework to help determine what that looks like. Because in the past, we've always landed on, well, it had an outcome that we didn't really like that much. So it's got to be learning rich, right? It was yeah. a recordable. So it's got to be learning rich. And right. the real answer to that question is a recordable learning rich? The, the answer is maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so this is where we go to that. So one of the things we worked on was what is organisational learning and how do you have that conversation? Because it's a fairly, it's an interesting construct organisationally. Yeah. So what we came up with was these four questions. And what we wanted to do, so the idea would be, would be that, you know, some sort of technical specialist that involved um, the, you know, the, the owner of the event and workers or maybe even the worker involved or worker representative would have this conversation asking these questions. Now, they, 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 they seem binary, these questions, in a way, but they're not designed for binary outcome. So um, they're designed to generate this conversation and have this, would there be, is there, some, is there something further here would be worth discovering? Um, the first question is about change. Because we know when there's changes to work, not often, sometimes they're not well planned, not well implemented, not well understood, and there's an opportunity for error and, and to create error. We know where there's multiple controls required for success, that that might be, mean the error tolerance is low. So, you know, we, you know there's an opportunity there around and multiple controls. Uh, multiple stakeholders, and this is this is one in your world, previous life, Sam, with, with with contractors and clients, and you have that duopoly of of stakeholders, and then there's stakeholders within stakeholders, um, and and that again that can create confusion. Uh, it's where workers will adapt, where they'll innovate. Uh, it's where that it's where unknown risk can lie. Um, and lastly, is that can others outside the team benefit from learning and understanding um, some of these issues? So. There, so we didn't want to. We wanted to make this a simple thing that um, you know, a couple of people within half an hour, forty-five minutes an hour, could have this as a conversation and then make a decision. This isn't meant to be, uh, you know, a, a, a thesis or a dissertation. This is just meant to be a conversation between the stakeholders at each level, so the workers, the uh, the supervisor or technical specialist and the owner of the event or the owner of the work, is there something here worth, worth, worth digging into? Yes, there is. So that's our, that's our triage process for classifying events and classifying that level of learning. So we've, we've written our, our first work white paper on that. Um, and as I said, we'll be publishing that shortly. Um, and uh, we'll also be publishing an extract because the white paper itself um, is quite lengthy and 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 we've we're back 
So these questions are backed by some, you know, literary review from some science to justify why we picked those. Yeah. Because I'm sure the debate will go, well, why didn't you pick this? Why didn't you pick that? Well, because we didn't want to make it a day-long process. Right, right. So we needed to curate a set of questions that could be done quickly um, with the knowledge of the people that matter most to the work. So that's the first one. The second one is what we call the event insight. So basically what this is designed to do is replace things like five whys. Uh, it's designed to replace things like, um, you know, how you, some organisations will have a computer system or it may even be, may even be a, a handwritten report and it says nominate the root causes and you've got to tick all these different mm-hmm. boxes, drop down menus and all this other stuff. Yeah, um, there's, so there's about a million different names, right? Where you Some places you go, you have a 5Y and then it escalates potentially into an RCA. In the power yeah. gen space, you find a lot of this termin- terminology that I always found interesting that was around apparent cause analysis and root cause analysis. And again, based yeah. on based on recordability, lost time, those general yeah. things, that is going to determine whether this is just a kind of ask some questions, get a bunch of statements, do a bit of an apparent cause, come up with some best guesses as far as corrective actions, or it's going yeah. to get blown into this large-scale multi-day process typically of a root cause analysis, right? So, yeah. Exactly. So what, what this is designed to do is, is function, two, it offers two functions. One is a standalone investigation process itself, mm. and the other one is a, is a is an inquiry process that might lead you to discover, hang on, there's actually organisation learning here. Maybe we need to have a deeper look. So this is designed to be done by frontline leaders. Like this, this isn't rocket science. It's not designed to be rocket science. Just if you've got a curious mindset um, and you've got a, a leader that that that's prepared to to look in the mirror, this is a perfect question set for them. Again, curated. Um, and the first three questions are about what happened. So the first one's pretty simple. Nice open question about describe what happened. The next question is about surprise Mm. Um, because there's always, when work goes wrong or doesn't go as expected, it's always a surprise. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it that way. Right. It all made sense until it suddenly didn't make sense anymore. That's right. Um, We would have, we we might have known there was a risk that it could go pear-shaped, but we didn't expect it to. So what surprised you about the event? Um, So that's a really important question. The The last, the third question is about the event is what could have gone worse and why didn't it? And this is about are we good or are we lucky? This is about, well, you know, person A did something uh, that meant that it, no one really got seriously hurt. But that what that person did, what that worker did, that's in no procedure. That's just how they normally do it to make sure no one gets hurt. Yeah. So the worker was good, the organisation was lucky, right? So it's discovering those things, and especially for those organisations that are in that critical risk or critical control management, knowing what's working in your critical controls and what's not working, or what even works better, what's more error-proof, what's more error-tolerant, is so vital. Yeah. So they're the first three questions. The next three are about the task. When this task works well, what must go right? And you're going to learn both the things that need to go right and you'll learn the things that if that went, if they don't go right, this is where it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you, and quite often you'll, you'll hear about things like resourcing and like tools, equipment and those sorts of right. things, planning, scheduling. The next question is 
what frustrates you? Um, because we know when things frustrate things, when when things when 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 people when things are out of people's workers control, where they have to that, that's where they have to adapt, and that's again the blue line, right? So discovering that blue line about what does it those conditions those constraints. The th sixth question there, which is the last one, how many times Sam have you heard someone say, "If only the managers upstairs know we, how we really get how we really get this done." Um, they'd be they'd be gobsmacked. They'd be you know they'd be appalled. They'd be you know they'd be blown away. Well, here's your chance. Here's your chance to make management understand what they need to know. What don't you think they know? Yeah. And management and and these are the things management want to know. Want to know. And then basically it starts to translate to action. So the 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 the, the question is about how can we improve the way we do this task. Um, and and that's from the workers, like asking the workers. So because they're the subject matter experts, we yeah. know that. They're, and, you know, as Decker says, they're the ones that, you know, they're the answer to our problems, not they're the solution, right? So leveraging them. Um, and so that's the question set. And lastly, it's just translation to action. Just translation to action. What do you think of that? That's cool. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I love it. So white papers coming out on that at the same time. Um, again, you know, subject to there's been some literary review um, with with Yop and I. Um, so these questions are curated. They're they're, they're on purpose. They're deliberate. Um, they're backed by some of the science. Uh, and the idea is is to to really take that humble inquiry approach. Yeah. Well, I, I see this, and this is this is just me thinking out loud here a bit, but. You know, I see this especially in organizations as they start down this path, right? We're, we're shifting towards doing things a bit differently. We started yeah. doing things like learning teams. We typically have, while doing that at some point in our journeys, uh, many find themselves to this point of maturity now where we, okay, we, we have learning teams working pretty well. And we usually have some more informal versions of that working pretty well, you know, w within our organizations. But... We still have this really rigid, traditionally based incident investigation, something that our safety folks tend to manage or at least make the frontline folks do, right? Kind of around the, it usually comes with a pretty burdensome form or online form. And you're still, there's still this element of someone getting investigated, or at least it feels a bit like that, even if that's not the intent of the organization. I guess what I'm saying is that that more traditional, investigation framework still exists usually in a procedure and is still required by a rule somewhere within that organization, even yeah. though at a certain point in their journey, yeah, we're still doing that stuff, but we're mostly interested over here. So yeah. when I think about that as, as a person in an organization that would be looking for something to modernize, dare I say revolutionize, um, their actual incident investigation ick right i hate that word but yeah. incident investigation thing safety right. investigation something usually right and we know yeah. again we kind of describe that but we know what that traditionally looks like they they where i'm going with this is they find themselves in this position where they're going what do we do what do yeah. we do with this and what you just laid out there around and, and i think the um 
I think your 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 name and everything that you kind of tie to this of investigations differently says what I'm trying to say in it in itself, right? In the branding of it all. But I think yeah. it gives them that thing differently. Right. So I, I, again, I don't know, I don't know if that's some of the vision that you're seeing oh, behind that. But as I think about that as spending the majority of my life internal as a practitioner of this stuff to an organization, if I saw that, I'd be going, we need that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we need, right? It feels like yeah. that piece that as we continue to try to modernize, it feels like it's it's that, right? It, it's that. That seems like a great step uh, in that modernization of how they've approached these type of more traditional investigations in the past. Yeah. It's something that seems like could be highly valuable to folks out there, especially at that point in their journey. Well, the thing is, like, when we look at things like um, learning teams, yeah. um they are actually resource intensive in a way. Yeah. So we're, we're going to grab a bunch of operators out of your system for half day, a day, two days, whatever it takes, mm-hmm. um, and, and we need that commitment. And, and 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 being mindful, of course, that the return on that investment is massive. Like yeah. the, every time I've seen it, uh, we've, we've run the learning teams and every learning team I've seen, the return back to operations has been, you know, incalculable in terms of the, their return on their investment. But we that sort of process, the process, the event insight process I just went through, a um, couple of hours, and you could do it with one worker, you could do it with the group of workers at the workplace where the job's being done at the work site. It's designed to be like that. It's not designed to be anything that takes longer than um, an hour or two. Yeah. Uh, that's what it's designed to be. So it's light touch on operations. But in terms of the investment they get out of, the return they'll get out of that investment is also going to be massive. Yeah. Uh, It's also going to be massive. Thanks for listening, everybody. We greatly appreciate all of your support of the Hot Nerd Podcast, the Hot Nerd LLC. If you need a little bit of help of bringing human and organizational performance to life, if you would like to take your efforts around learning and improving to the next level, yep, I can help with that. Head over to www.thehotnerd.com or send me an email, thehotnerd at gmail.com. Until next time, bye, everybody. Bye.